0: Chapter 2. In this chapter, we see the Apostle, Paul, the Apostle John continuing to develop the signs that Jesus did that bear testimony to who He is so that we would read and believe. Uh, last week, two weeks, we studied the wedding at Cana. The first of His signs that He did in Cana of Galilee, that manifest His glory and His disciples believe in Him. And in that sign, we saw the very gracious kindness of God to work in a situation that would have created social stigma for this family and to alleviate that tension and to create out of water wine. Now we see the severity of Jesus. Jesus. And the study before us is a little unsettling. In verse 12, it told us, we looked at this last week, after the wedding in Cana, he goes down to Capernaum. He is there with his mothers, his brothers, his disciples. He is there for a period of time, a few days. We know from the synoptics that he comes back to Capernaum. But during these few days, he is beginning to develop his ministry in northern Galilee. And he is advancing into a time of tremendous popularity. When you read the synoptics, you see people flocking to him. During this period of his ministry, he works many of his public miracles, he heals lepers. Crowds come to hear him preach. We have the Sermon on the Mount. He breaks away and with all of the other Jewish males heads to Jerusalem to the Passover. And so verse 12 really acts as a bridge between what we see in the miracle in Cana, and the sign that we now see when he is at the temple. Notice with me what the Scripture says. The Passover of, of the Jews was at hand. Now, Ben read to us in Exodus chapter 12, that for foundational text in the Scripture that explains to us what Passover is. Passover is at hand. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Notice the word up. He ascends to Mount Zion, going up in elevation. And in the temple, He finds those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. He finds the money changers that are sitting there at tables. And He made a whip out of rope. He drove out all the livestock. Drove them out of the temple. Sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. Specifically, he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house an emporium. That's the Greek word. An emporium. A house of trade. A house of merchandise. A place where you come and you buy and you sell. not make my father's house an emporium. His disciples remembered it was written in the Psalms by David's zeal, Your house will consume me. I do want you to notice the word house there, and I'm going to tie it to three words in the rest of the text. Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us since you are doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Here's my sign destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? Notice the word temple tying back to house. And then notice the word body when he says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture, even the word that Jesus had spoken. So the word that Jesus has spoken is Scripture, because what we have just read that Jesus said is nowhere in the Old Testament. It is the word of Jesus that his disciples say is the Scripture. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. When they saw the signs that he was doing, these signs that we don't even have recorded, these miracles that Jesus is doing, remember at the end of the book it said, there were many miracles that Jesus did that are not written in the book, but these ones are written so that you believe. Here we see he is in Jerusalem at the Passover and the people have seen him do signs. Many are believing in his name, but Jesus on his part did not believe in them. That's actually the word. It's a play on words there. They believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in them. Jesus did not believe in them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what is in men. This is a startling text. It is a sobering text. Zeal for your house has consumed me. We talked about 2 verse 12. We talked about how it's a bridge into this text. It was a time of popularity in the masses when he's in Galilee. Now he comes down into Jerusalem at the Passover and there at the Passover he does this sign and he speaks this sign when he says to them destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up 46 years it took Herod the Great to amass all these workers and to put this thing together and you're going to do it in three days but they missed the truth that he was not talking about the physical temple which is a building he was talking about the spiritual temple which is the body. First prediction by Jesus of his impending death. No one takes the life of Jesus from him. He lays it down. Jesus clearly says that in John. He lays it down as a Passover lamb. He knows what is coming. He is not surprised by what is coming. He says, you will do this. You will destroy this temple. But you will only destroy this temple because I allow you to do it. Three days, I'll raise it up. It is the first prediction that Jesus makes of his death. There are two cleansings of the temple in the Scripture. We've already mentioned this. Let me just make mention of it again. The first one, which John records which is in the first Passover that Jesus celebrates during his earthly ministry. John mentions to us three Passovers that Jesus celebrates during his ministry. This is the first one. The last one is when he goes back to Jerusalem in that last year of his earthly ministry, when he is preparing to be crucified, he tells his disciples to go and to prepare the Passover in the upper room. And then together they celebrate the Passover. They have that meal. He washes their feet and all the things as he institutes the Lord's Supper. And he transitions the Old Testament Passover into the New Covenant Passover, which is the Lord's table. And so in perpetuity... As God said in Exodus chapter 12, you will celebrate this as a memorial to me through all your generations. We now continue to celebrate it, His people, but we celebrate it as Christ is our Passover. He has been sacrificed for us. And so we remember the Passover. It is embedded with new meaning. This cleansing that Jesus does of his temple results in surprise and inquiry. The leaders of the Jews come to him, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Where did you get the authority to do this? Leads to that conversation that we've just alluded to, the second one, which is in all the synoptics, So interestingly, every one of the Gospels records the cleansing of the temple, three of them at the end of Christ's ministries, and only John mentions the one that is at the beginning. If you read all the accounts, it is clear that although they are very similar, they are distinct, separate occasions because there are too many different facts. The second results in rage by the Jewish leaders. And they're like done with it. And it sets the stage for Jesus' crucifixion. Malachi chapter 3 is a prophecy. I hope you can read this. This is a little bit small, but I put it on one screen nevertheless. And I want you to see the prophecy that Jesus fulfills in these cleansings. He says this, See, I am going to send my messenger. He will clear the way before me. That's who? John the Baptist. We already studied him. See, I am going to send my messenger. He will clear the way before me. In Malachi chapter 4, it talks about him again. But then it says, Then, after this, the Lord you seek, the Lord, Jehovah, will suddenly come to his temple. He is the messenger of the covenant that you desire. See, He is coming, says the Lord of armies. But who can endure the day of His coming? Who will be able to stand when He appears? For He will come and He will be like a refiner's fire. He will be like cleansing lye. And He will be like a refiner and a purifier of silver And he will purify the sons of Levi. He will refine them like gold and silver. Then they will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will please the Lord. As in days of old and years gone by. And so what Jesus does here is a fulfillment of this prophecy in the book of Malachi. Now, in one sense, this that we read is the first fulfillment of this prophecy and yet there is a greater fulfillment as in many of the prophecies of scripture there is a near and far fulfillment and so once again jesus will come to this earth and he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver and he will cleanse his temple we read about in the book of revelation we read about it in many of the prophetic things that point to the end times And so there's a near and a far fulfillment. And so we see Jesus here fulfilling Malachi chapter 3. After the messenger has come, he has cleared the way. Then the Lord you seek suddenly comes to his temple. And that is exactly what we see Jesus doing. Let's consider the Feasts of Israel for a minute. We're talking about Passover. Let's think about all of them for just a minute. In the Feasts of Israel, the first one that you have to recognize that all of these feasts that we talk about, that Israel celebrated... Are all linked to the Sabbath, every one of them. If you take the Sabbath away from them, they don't make any sense because the Sabbath was very important in the way they celebrated all the feasts. They begin, they end, they are worked into a Sabbath. They have high Sabbaths at certain ones, but there was all a special Sabbath when the people of Israel would set aside their normal occupation and their normal pursuits, and they would pursue the Lord in a feast and in a celebration. So the Sabbath is integral to all of the feasts of Israel in the Old Testament. You then have Passover. We'll talk about that a little bit more in depth in a minute. After Passover, you got 50 days go by, and then you got Pentecost. You have coming into the fall, you have a day of trumpets, and that leads in, in the seventh month, to the day of atonement we call Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. I'm not going to go through all these feasts and teach on them this morning because I want to get to the text. Nevertheless, there are many things that are in each of these feasts that point to the cycle of redemption and are fulfilled in Jesus' Then you have Booths. Now, Booths is sometimes called, remember in the old KJV, it was called Tabernacles. Really what it was, was like a long seven-day celebration when you go and you live in your tent. It was a man-made tent, though. You didn't go to Cabela's and buy it, right? It was a man-made tent, and it was just a remembrance of what event? The wilderness wanderings when everybody lived in a tent. So everybody went out into a tent, and they celebrated booths or tents for seven days in order to remember, there again, all of the things that were related to the coming out of Israel from Egypt and God's redemption. Now, there are other feasts that are celebrated in conjunction with these, and every one of them is related to the fact that they were in agrarian society. And so the cycles of planting and harvest were very important in the religious ceremonies of Judaism. So you have it beginning with unleavened bread. So Passover is linked with unleavened bread. And so at Passover, they then cleanse from their home all of the leaven from the last year. Now, remember, they didn't go to the store and buy yeast. Their yeast was what? Sourdough starter, right? Sourdough starter, that kind of thing. Now, some of you ladies got sourdough starter, and it's been sitting and growing and brewing for three years in your back pantry. And maybe it's getting kind of nasty by now. You know, but you keep that thing alive, and it's just a growing thing. Well, in Judaism, what they would do is every year at unleavened bread, they would purify it, and they would get it out of the house, and they would start over. They would start over with their yeast, And so, there's this cycle that is built into this. There was a spiritual truth that is linked to this with cleansing. That is why Jesus cleanses the temple at Passover at the time of unleavened bread. That's the link. First fruits, that's just the first that you gather in, okay? That's like your first part of the harvest. And so they would bring that to the Lord and they would offer of the first fruits. It's kind of like this for us. What is your first fruits? It's like when do you give to the Lord? Do you give to the Lord after all your bills are paid out of what you have left at the end of the month? Or do you trust God and give to the Lord from what he entrusts to you at the beginning of the month? If you wait till all your bills are paid to give, then it's not so much faith, is it? Not so much faith. So, first fruits is linked to faith and trusting that God will bring in the remainder of the harvest. Then there is harvest, and this, of course, is linked with Pentecost. Then there is the ingathering when it's all done, the year is over, and now there's a big celebration at the camp out when they're going into booths because everything's in the grapes, the barley, the wheat. And now in-gathering comes together, and so this agrarian cycle of the Jewish year is tied into the Feast of Israel. When we think about Passover, Jesus goes up to the Passover. Here's some things to mention. First of all, Passover is the first month of the Jewish year. What's our first month? We just got through it. January, right? We start with January. They don't. They start with Passover. They start with that month, the month that celebrates when the Jews left Egypt and God brings them out through the ten plagues. So it is the first month of the Jewish year. It commemorates the exodus from Egypt. We read that this morning in Exodus chapter 12. When they applied the blood to the doorposts and the lintel. And when he saw the blood, what did he do? He passed over that house. He passed over. He did not end to destroy the firstborn that was in the home. So the blood was what made them safe. And the blood was what made them secure and brought them that salvation. And all that points to Jesus Christ. And so it commemorates Exodus from Egypt. We have the Paschal Lamb. That's the word paschal. It's a Greek word that links it into... Passover. Now, we're going to do a Passover celebration. We're going to do it on a Friday night, the Good Friday leading up to Passover. We'll do some teaching on it. We won't do it near as good as Chosen People Ministries, but we'll nevertheless do it. And we're going to have the meal together. Here's the the interesting thing that I want you to put into your hat and begin to think about. When we celebrate it and when Jews celebrate it today, what do they eat? Anybody remember that? What do they eat? Chicken. Chicken. In fact, if you go to New York City where all the great Orthodox Jews live, they have a specific ceremony that is actually protected by law in New York City to allow them to sacrificially kill a rooster. Protected by law as a sacrifice. Now, in Exodus chapter 12, how many roosters were getting killed? How much rooster blood was being applied to doorposts and lintels? Probably not much. In fact, if you had done that, what do you think would have happened to your firstborn? It would have been a pretty bad day in your house. Why in the world are the Jews using chicken for Passover? You know why? For the same reason that Jesus knocked down the temple because Jesus was it. Now, they're doing it out of rebellion. Don't get that wrong. But the reason is this. There are no sheep being killed in a temple in Jerusalem today. You know why? Because Jesus said, I was it. And when we got to 70 A.D., he knocked it down, and there was no more sacrifice for sin. He is it. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. The Jews don't know why they're eating chicken. But God does. And he has a plan. It's a, we're going we're to make a big deal out of that when we eat the Passover together over what that is. But that's an important thing to think about. Now, all men appear before the Lord in solemn assembly. All men. It's laid out in the law. All Jewish men. Many proselytes came as well. You read Josephus. During the days of Jesus, about 2 million people came to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. We're not talking about the residents of the city. We're talking about pilgrims coming there, about 2 million. That's amazing to think of. Now, that does not mean that men did not bring their families with them. Because in Luke's gospel, we find out that when Jesus was left in the temple, who was there too? Mary. Nevertheless, all Jewish males were to appear before the Lord in solemn assembly at Passover. There is no indication in the Last Supper when Jesus is in the upper room that any of the disciples have their wives and kids there. There's no indication in the text. It is Jesus and his disciples. Now, I'm not going to. We'll talk about that later when we talk about Passover as well, some of the things related to that. Let's go on. We've got a lot, of, a lot of screens to cover yet. We've got to keep moving. So, we've got unleavened bread. We talked about that. This is when they cleanse their homes. This is a seven day feast, it is related to Passover, it is a feast that celebrates cleansing. In other words, it's this deal, guys. It's this deal, people. When God forgives you of your sin, He didn't forgive you of your sin for you to keep it harbored in your house and to keep on doing it. He forgave you of your sin to do what to it? To destroy it and to get it out of your life. And that is the link between Passover and unleavened bread. Jesus Christ, as Lord, is not content to just get you into heaven by forgiving you. No, he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. That's the link in what we see today. Jesus cleanses his house. I imagine Jesus has been coming to the Passover for a long time. This is the first public one in his ministry. He has seen this thing going on, and he's not dealt with it. I bet money, I'm not a betting man, but I would still bet money, that there were a time of two When Jesus and Joseph left the temple complex, his dad said to him, that is a travesty what's going on in those courts. I bet the relationship of Jesus and Joseph was such that his heavenly father was pleased by what Joseph taught him. And I bet Joseph, a time or two, sat Jesus down and said, that is flat wrong. And he sets a stage for Jesus to cleanse his house. It's his house. Jesus is not frustrated, okay? This isn't like a fit of rage. He is indignant. It is righteous indignation. He sees the profaning of what is holy and he acts decisively and extremely deliberately. He is not in a rage. This is not a violent attack. This is not a violent attack. It gets everybody's attention though. He takes a whip and he drives out the livestock and he overturns tables of the money changers. He says to those who are selling the pigeons, notice that, specifically the pigeons, don't make my father's house a house of, uh, of trade, an emporium. Why do you say it to those selling pigeons? Well, here's why. Because if you were too poor and you could not buy a lamb or an oxen to do your sacrifice, you were permitted under the law to buy something less expensive, which was a pigeon. These pigeon traders are exploiting who? The poor. And he talks to them directly. He acts decisively and extremely deliberately. He has not lost his temper. This is not mob violence. If it was, the Roman garrison that is in the fortress of Antonio would have been down there. They come down there all the time when they see the Jews in a bent-up you know, fight. They do that. You see it in the book of Acts. That's how they rescue Paul when he's being taken by a mob. This isn't a mob. This isn't a big scene. It, I mean, it's a big deal in one sense, but it's not like he's just in a fit of rage. In a controlled way, Jesus exerts his sovereignty over his house, and he takes decisive, deliberate action. Careful your response. I, I, I could talk about anger for a long time here. but I don't got a long time, so we're not going to talk about it very long, but careful, your response is showing. It's not like Jesus loses it. It's not that. Okay, Jesus is not losing it here. By the way, if you look and you contrast this with Numbers chapter 20 and you think about Moses and Aaron, there's a huge contrast because Jesus, in righteous indignation, cleanses his temple and God, his Father, puts a seal of approval on that action. Moses and Aaron lose their temper. And God chastens them. He gives the people water. Isn't that remarkable? Because Moses and Aaron are in direct defiance and disobedience, and God nevertheless gives the people water. But Moses and Aaron get judged. They cannot go into the promised land. It's an interesting study in contrast. We're not going to take the time with it this morning because I've got too far to go yet. But nevertheless, think about this thing with anger. By the way, this is why anger or a pugnacious spirit is a disqualifier for the office of an elder and a deacon. Now, that one's in all the lists. This doesn't mean an elder, though, is a pushover. And then he doesn't confront, but he does so like Jesus in a measured way, in a deliberate way, in full control of all of his faculties. There's no sin. Okay, a little background. Who are the money changers and what about the livestock market? Why is that going on here? I like to go to livestock markets, watch the auction going on, watch the action as cattle come through, and this really ends up just being a big livestock market. They're selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. Why are they doing that? Why are the money changers there? Who are these guys? Okay, here's the deal. Like I said, there's about 2 million pilgrims coming from all over the world. Remember, you got Jews dispersed everywhere. About 2 million of them are coming into town. Now, you're going to come from Tyre, you may come from Sidon, you may come from Rome. You could do a big deal and make a big trip and come from Parthia. You know what? It'd be really hard to drag along with you in that journey, a sheep. So, when the pilgrims showed up, they bought those sheep. They didn't bring it. It's also important to note, Jerusalem is a bustling metropolis at the time. Not everybody in Jerusalem had a lamb in the backyard. They had to get their lamb somewhere. They got them from the hills of Bethlehem, by the way, where they raised them. They raised millions of sheep. You had to in the land of Israel because this was a bustling situation where much livestock is being sacrificed to the Lord in the temple complex. Really, if you think about the temple, you know what it was? It's like a slaughterhouse. It's like a slaughterhouse. Every day, morning to night, animals are being killed as a sacrifice for sin. And so, I mean, there is just one after the other every day of every week going on in Jerusalem. Now, um, let me go back. The money changers, livestock market, this is what's going on there, it's the pilgrims. The money changers is this. Every year, if you were a Jewish male, you had to pay a temple tax. Now, you had Roman taxes, but you had a temple tax. I think it was a half shekel. The Jews did not take coinage from any other nationality. It had to be a Jewish coin had to be a kosher coin. Here's the reason. Much of the, many, most of the Roman coins had an inscription of who on it? The Caesar. That's why remember what Jesus says about taxes. Whose image is on this coin? So you could not show up in Jerusalem and pay your temple tax with a Roman coin. You had to get a Jewish coin to do it. In order to do that, you had to exchange it. The money changers are sitting at tables exchanging Roman coinage for Jewish coinage. Now, here's the trick there's no established exchange rate. Which allows for what? Fraud and greed. No established exchange rate. So you're a money changer, you get for it what you can get, and whatever you get, that's your payment. I just had to ask myself, you know, what in American evangelicalism raises the ire of our God? And in conjunction with that, what about Emmanuel Bible Church? I think we need to reflect on that. Now, here's the merchant's logic number one, we are providing a necessary service. Oh, Amy and I were talking, I think it was yesterday, it might have been the day before, we were talking about the power of self-justification. That's in every one of us. These guys don't see what they're doing as bad. We're providing a necessary service. How about this one? We are only aiding people's worship. People are coming here to worship God and we're helping them. And not only that, we're really convenient Because we're right in the temple courts. We're right where they come in, into the court of the Gentiles. And so we are just right there. It's convenient. We're helping them. Why would it be bad that I make a little money on the side? So they were providing a necessary service. They were aiding in worship. Why is it wrong to make a little money? So that brings us to the question, why did Jesus cleanse the temple? What is it that makes Jesus indignant? I'm going to give you four things real quick. One, it is to show his sovereignty over it. It is his house. He has the right. Malachi chapter 3, he is coming to his house, and he will refine it. This is why this is a big deal, and the Jews come to him and ask him about it. What sign did you do to show us this? He is exerting his authority to do it. Number two was because of a tarnished testimony among the nations. In the synoptics at the later cleansing he says this, my father's house is to be a house of prayer for all the nations. And you have made it a marketplace. God takes it seriously how He is represented to a lost world. And if the actions of the church and of Christians destroys the testimony not of the church, that's not what we're talking about, but the reputation of God, He takes that seriously. There was a tarnished testimony to the nations. It's in the court of the Gentiles. They were taking advantage of those in need. They were taking advantage. And what they were doing distorted the very character of God. Here's the way it distorts it. Salvation is not a commodity. You cannot buy and sell forgiveness of sins. It's not up for sale. And they are distorting that. That, by the way, is what incensed Martin Luther when he nails 95 Theses to the church door in Wittenberg. It is because of the sale of indulgences by the Roman church that was saying, if you buy this so that we can build St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, then you'll get dead Uncle Harry out of purgatory 50 years early. And it was a lie. You cannot buy and sell salvation. Basic rule is this. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10 to his disciples, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with leprosy, drive out demons. You have received free of charge, give free of charge. The church does not charge for the Lord's table. The church does not charge for baptism. The church does not charge salvation. The tithe is not an entry fee to church. When you give to the Lord, you are giving out of joy and thanksgiving not to gain His favor. If you think you are, you are sadly mistaken. Salvation is not a commodity that you can buy. So, this doesn't mean it's wrong for a pastor to receive a wage for his labor. You see that all through the New Testament. I can't build on that this morning, but that is in the Scripture. This does not mean it's wrong for a Christian to make money off his intellectual property. So a Christian writes a book. It's not wrong for him to sell that book and to make money off of his intellectual property. What it is is this. It is wrong to sell salvation and to make merchandise out of the forgiveness of sins. That is wrong. Always has been. Always will be. That was the error of Balaam. When he goes to prophesy for a buck. That was the error of Simon Magnus in Acts chapter 8. When he goes to Peter and he says, Man, you got a power to give the Holy Spirit. I'll give you a few bucks under the table if you give me that power. What did Peter say? Your money go to hell with you. No, you cannot buy and sell salvation. Zeal for your house has devoured me. Zeal for your house has devoured me. This is Christ's statement, of, or the disciple's statement concerning Christ as they see what is going It has eaten me up. It is my passion, he says. Now, I want to make a note. Notice the link. House, temple, body. House, temple, body. Zeal for your house has consumed me. But he is speaking about the temple which is his body. In the Old Covenant, what was the big deal to God? And where did his Shekinah glory dwell? In a facility called a temple. In the New Covenant, where does God's glory dwell? In a body which is a temple. And so Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, your body is the temple of the Lord. And so what does God do to our bodies? The totality of who we are. He refines it and He cleanses it. Listen to me. God's zeal for His house is not primarily about a building. It's not about a facility. It's not about a structure. When it says God is zealous and zeal for the house of God has consumed Him, in the New Covenant, what He is talking about is His church, the people. The people. That God is concerned, not so much about this building. If it burns down and it is gone, big deal. We'll build another. They come in and take it away from us because of our position somewhere along the way. And the government changes hands. And all of a sudden, they say, well, you can't have that building because you're not towing the line. And they say, you've got to go meet in the field. So be it. Right? That's what the Russians did during the Cold War. So be it. God is not zealous for a building. You know what God is zealous for? is for the holiness of his people. The holiness of his people. And that's what we need to take stock of. Are we his people... Likewise, consumed with being a people that are set apart unto God, a temple. What sins do we justify? Like the money changers. And we just think it ain't no big deal. I think this passage demonstrates to us it is. Let's close in a word of prayer. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We bow our hearts and our heads before you. I imagine your disciples were kind of awestruck when they saw this thing happening. And so we too, your children. Lord, forgive us your people. May we this week take careful scrutiny of our house, which is our body, which is a temple, that it is clean before you. Forgive us, Lord. And so we pray in Jesus' name.